0: Matthew 16, go ahead and turn in your Bible, Matthew 16. And we'll get to work together, Matthew 16, 13. Recently, I read a book on church membership, just getting ready for the series that we're gonna be doing. I read a book, it's called Church Membership by Jonathan Lehman, and Lehman talks about a conversation that he had where he sat down with a fellow brother in Christ, and the brother asked him this question. And as I ask it, I want you to think about how you might answer it. Here's the question. He said, what is the difference between two Christians who belong to the same church and two Christians who belong to different churches? So think about that in our context. What's the relationship between me and you, brother, in this church, versus my relationship with Brother Cole over at Bethel. Okay, so, so Bethel Church has the say, affirms the same confession of faith as we do. We're part of the same denominational family. We have family members in this church, blood family members in this church that are also in the same with our sister church north of us. But what's the difference between my relationship with someone at that church versus my relationship with you, the church member here at Bethesda? Lehman answers, and he says, if there's no difference between those two relationships, then we'd have to say that the local church does not exist. It would be like saying, and I love this, it would be like saying there's no difference between my relationship with my wife and my relationship with other women. That would be true only if the marital covenant did not exist, but the marriage does exist. So there's a big difference in those relationships. Likewise, the local church does exist we have covenanted together we are in we have obligations towards one another and so it seems as if there should be some difference in those relationships and so do you get that there if there's no difference between me and brother tony and me and brother colt what are we doing here i would argue that there is a, a difference the difference is that you and i have chosen to covenant together in discipleship. More specifically, we submit to each other in practicing church discipline. Am I my brother's keeper at Bethesda in a way that I am not at Bethel or other churches? The answer is yes. And so here's the thing. There is a host of Bible passages that we gloss over. I want to read some of them for you. They are uncomfortable. And we do not highlight them in our devotional time. So I thought I would read them for you here. Titus 3, here we go. We will offload a few of these for you. Now we command you, brothers, Paul says, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you receive from us. This is the famous passage, by the way, where Paul then will go on to say that he who does not work shall not eat. And so he goes after laziness. And then further down in the same passage, he says, if anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person, have nothing to do with them, that he might be ashamed. Okay? Feeling uncomfortable? Maybe give you another one. First Timothy 1. Paul's speaking to Timothy about certain brothers who have made shipwreck of their faith. Among them are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan to be taught not to blaspheme. Blaspheme. Let me give you another one from Paul. Avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law for they are unprofitable and worthless. For if a person stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. I've got seven more in the chamber I could fire off here. For your sake, I won't. In our devotional reading, we, we tend, if we even pay attention to those verses, we'll go, I guess that's how they did it back in the day, right? Or we go, Paul just throws down, does he? I guess that's, he's an apostle. That's, he gets a pass, I guess. And yet the truth is, if American evangelical practice or lack of practice is any indicator, we ignore these verses. I've joked about this before. I'll do it again here. You don't see in too many Christian households in their kitchens, live, laugh, love, and then underneath, cast out the unbeliever. You're not going to see that. Or you don't see when you walk into someone's living room where it says, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And then underneath it says, hand that person over to Satan. You're not not going to see that, right? These are not t-shirt-friendly verses. But we have to pay attention to them. Now, I said church discipline. Lorena prayed church discipline a moment ago. And someone who may have invited their friend this morning went, Out of all days that you chose to talk about church discipline, you chose today. Are you serious, Aaron? Yes. Hold on. You'll be okay. I'll be okay. So here we go. I want to ask, so I can know what we're dealing with this morning raise your hand if you have ever heard a sermon, whole sermon, dedicated to church discipline. Yeah, not too many, okay? a few of you. It's better than what I thought. How many of you, and I'm going to use this word precisely, have seen church discipline practiced in a healthy way at a local church? Raise your hand. That is better than I thought. Hopefully, that's because it was practiced here in a healthy way. Mark Dever talked about in in a chapter in a theology I was reading about how church discipline was not as unpopular as it was as as it is today if you were to go back to the 19th century a study was done on pre-civil war southern baptist churches and it was found that in these baptist churches they excommunicated two percent of their members every year and yet they were growing at twice the rate of the general population at the same time maybe something about desiring to have a community that is defined by holiness had something to do with it and so here's what i know You and I are called to holiness. I believe the reason why many of our churches are not holy is because we would rather be comfortable than to remain biblical. And church discipline exists in the context of discipleship. So what I have done over the last four weeks, as we have talked about the value of baptism, the Lord's Supper, the value of church membership, we did all of that first before we got to this, so that it would not be a shock to our system that we would just out of nowhere talk about church discipline. But we would have already said, this is what it means to be a member of God's church. So within the context of discipleship, as we're growing, we're falling down, we're getting back up, being sanctified, growing into the image of Christ, we have other brothers and sisters who come alongside of us and are willing to be the hands and feet of Jesus who say, can I offer a word of correction? So that's what we're going to do right now is talk about what that means to offer that word of correction. And so get this. Church discipline only makes sense within the larger context of the life of discipleship. So that's what we're going to do. I want to read, we're going to look at Matthew 16, the keys of the kingdom. We're then going to look at Matthew 18. Jesus gives a four-step process and how this is supposed to work. And then we'll end by looking at a case study in 1 Corinthians 5. Oh, but we need the Lord to help us in this moment. So let's pray. Let's go before him once more, and then we'll dive in. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you who are the ultimate peacemaker, were not, you were not passive, but instead you confronted us in our sin by dying on the cross in our place. We thank you that you confronted us. You didn't leave us where we were at. Lord, would you help us now to take the model of what you have done on the cross and confronting us in our sin to help us be lovingly confrontational in all the right ways. Oh, Lord, we are prone towards legalism. I plead with you, Lord, help us not to hear a message of legalism, but instead to hear the call to holiness motivated by the grace that you alone have given us. Only you can do this clarifying work, Holy Spirit. Help us now in your name. Amen. Matthew 16, 13 says this. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ Christ that is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Petras, and upon this Petra I will build my church. So when you read that, and it says, you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. That is a play on words in the original language. You are, his name is Simon, but Jesus is calling him the rock. And then he says, upon this rock I will build my church. So let's stop right here. Peter makes a declaration that Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus then turns and makes a declaration that Peter is the rock. Or makes a statement about Peter related to the rock. And so, what does that mean? He is the rock, and upon this rock I will build this, my church. If you were to look at church history, there are, have been those in the Catholic tradition who have said, Jesus' words here are the institution of what we would call the papacy. This is where we get the Bishop of Rome from and papal succession right here. Peter is the first pope. This is where you get it in this passage right here. And so he is the rock, the foundation, and all who follow in his apostolic succession in the line of Peter— all the way to the present day with Francis, those are those those who are the rock following after Peter. Protestants have responded and they've said, well, it's not Peter who is the rock, the person. It is the confession that Peter makes. It is that Jesus is the Messiah. That's the rock right there. That's what Protestants have said. What does Aaron say? Well, I have obviously sympathy for the second view that the, the, the confession is the rock, I don't think it's right. There's actually a third view that says both. Confession and Peter are the rock. I think if we're taking this simply from a historical perspective, Peter simply is the historical foundational guy. He is the disciple who regularly takes the lead. He is the disciple who's mentioned more than any other in Matthew's gospel. He is the first among equals. When you look at the list of disciples in Matthew 10, 2, He is the disciple who leads the early Jerusalem church, preaches that first sermon. The first 12 chapters in Acts are really his ministry, the Jewish ministry, before it turns on to Paul. And so let's not say more about Peter than we should. Let's not say less about Peter than we should. He is simply the Jerusalem church's early leader, the rock. Jesus goes further, and he says to him, "'I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven,' And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And so he gives Peter the responsibility of possessing the keys. Maybe this is where in your mind you immediately go and you think of Peter holding the keys to heaven. So when we all go to heaven one day, Peter's standing there with the keys and he's going to be the one to let you in. That's where, that's where this passage comes from. We'll see if that interpretation's right this responsibility to bind and to loose that he has, what could it possibly mean? I think the answer comes when we look at Matthew 18. Turn the page in your Bible and remember those words, keys and binding and loosing, right? Let me read verse 15 of chapter 18. Jesus now, in this setting, he has just finished talking about how God is like the good shepherd who leaves 99 sheep on a mountaintop and goes after the one who's gone astray. And so he has incredible love for the person who goes astray. And now he talks about what you do for a brother who has gone astray. And he says this in verse 15. He says, If your brother sins against you, write him an anonymous letter telling him about how much of a problem he is Sorry, I I read that wrong. Let me try one more time. If your brother sins against you, go and tell everyone else in your sphere of influence about how difficult a person he is and how we should all pray for him. Make sure he is the last person to know about how much you are hurt by him. Let me try one more time. Sorry. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained a brother. If he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. If he refuses to listen to even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Brother, sister, remember, you are a part of church, a church filled with sinners, hypocrites. Naturally, those who are bent, to have their pride bent in on themselves. We have idle factories, and these things called our hearts, and we're prone towards sin. It is not a matter of if you will inevitably butt heads with somebody in the local church. It is a matter of when that will happen. And so there's four rounds of confrontation. Jesus says, here's what you do when you find yourself in a situation like this. First, we correct the brother face-to-face alone. I need to pause here before I say anything else. I wish I didn't have to say this, but I will say it here. These four steps don't apply when a crime has been committed. There are all kinds of sins that we confront in church, but when it comes to specific crimes, and I have in mind, at least in this moment, those that involve different forms of abuse, you have to discern whether you're in Romans 13 territory or in Matthew 18 territory. Romans 13 talks about how God has instituted the government to uphold the law and to judge those who are wicked. And it says that the government does not bear the sword in vain, and it is there for our protection. And so, unfortunately, Matthew eighteen fifteen has been used on behalf of those who are in positions of authority in the church to say, how dare you go and say something about me when I may have committed even a crime against you you should have come to me first, and look how you're slandering me. And this is how this verse can be twisted. And it calls for you and I to be wise. And so here's what you should know how I respond and how I encourage others to respond as well. Be wise and discerning whether you have a Matthew 18 situation in front of you or a Romans 13 situation that may warrant calling the police. Okay? This assumes, for the sake of our discussion, that we're talking about a Matthew 18 situation be discerning here. We're called to go to our brother and sister who has hurt us, in which we see sin in their blind spot. We don't write anonymous letters. We don't talk to everyone except them about them. We don't make petty general statements on social media about people out there when we all know who you're talking about. Out of the care and concern for that person's reputation, and to not embarrass them, you go to that person. I should say, I am convicted even as I say this, because I know I haven't always done this. We show them the, their fault. We don't drop the hammer on them. We do this so that we win over our brother or sister. The aim is the restoration of the relationship. Hear me, the goal of confronting a brother or sister in sin is never retribution. It is always reconciliation. Reconciliation. It is always restoration. And let me say this. If you ever have to find yourself confronting a brother or sister in sin, don't say people are saying. When it, that normally just means you and your lame cousin or brother-in-law, okay? Be specific and say, here's where I saw you in this moment. In the church, we are called to be our brother's keeper, to look for his blind spots. And in most cases, you never have to get past step one. What do you do if you have to go beyond that? We correct number two, our brother, in the presence of two or three others. If he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Jesus is actually quoting from Deuteronomy 19, 15 here. So if you were going to go to the Torah, you would see the requirements in a judicial setting were to be that... The stakes were raised when you just didn't have one witness, but you had multiple witnesses. And so he's referring back to that. The seriousness of the matter has now been raised. Not just one person, but if unrepentance continues, you have two or three. And so it's not just you, but it's two or three others saying, brother, friend, we see this sin in your life. It is destroying you. It is destroying your family. It is hurting the reputation of Christ. And we don't want this for you. We don't want this for our body. Hear us. And so you have multiple people here. The circle is still small. It's not 10, 12, 15 people. For care of that person's reputation, you keep that conversation limited. What do you do then if there's no repentance even then? You've done the individual move. You've done the small group move. And now the next step. Jesus says we tell it to the church. And we tell the church about the offense. By the time it gets to this point, a a church would be wise if it's involved the elders at this point. Uh, Normally, an elder would have been one of those two or three that would have come along and implore the person not to harden their heart, not to damage their reputation and the church's reputation. You notice the seriousness, seriousness of what Jesus says. The last group to hear the offense is the church. It is not ultimately the ministry leaders, the elders, the deacons, individuals who are responsible for the rebellious person. It is, according to Jesus, the gathered assembly, the local congregation. So, Lord willing, you, you rarely ever have to get to this point. But this is what Jesus prescribes. And so the church all on the same page says, brother, we don't want this for you. What do you do if this erring brother still doesn't repent? Jesus says that we are to treat the offender as a, quote, Gentile or a tax collector. Because the fruit of this person's life is no longer consistent with that of being a believer. The fruit of their life no longer shows that they have genuine faith the church can no longer recognize him or her as a card-carrying kingdom citizen among the people of God. Some have said, okay, that statement, Gentile or tax collector... How did Jesus treat Gentiles or tax collectors? Didn't he welcome them into his, uh, in, into his setting where they would, they would eat a meal? And he, he loved them and cared for them and treated them in a way that he did not treat the Pharisees and the religious leaders. Doesn't that mean that if someone acts this way that we therefore are, are far more relational with them now? In a way that kind of circumvents that process of, of, of escalation. I think in response to that we have to remember a couple of things. Who is Matthew. He's a Jew, right? He's a good Jew. Writing to who? Jewish people. So how would they have heard those words Gentile and tax collector and Gentile who is outside of the people of God and a tax collector who has turned on their own people, taking taking in money on behalf of Rome and being a hypocrite or betrayer. And so I think we have to remember his audience. I think the second thing you have to remember is is how to treat them if you only if you go one, two, three, four. Remember the sequence here. It would undermine the whole sequence if you were to go behind step one by treating step four as if now we're gonna have a closer relationship than ever. I think the main takeaway here is this, according to Jesus, and how he treats Gentiles and tax collectors. Our relationship with a someone who had called themselves a brother and then acts so unrepentant and rebellious and hardens their heart that we get all the way to this last step, is our relationship with that brother changes. So you no longer go over and watch the ball game and pretend as if nothing happened. If you meet with that person, it is to treat them the way Jesus did, evangelistic, and to call them towards repentance. This person is now outside of the community of saints, and you treat them like an unbeliever. But how do I treat my unbelieving friends? I call them to salvation. I call them back to the Lord. and That's what we're called to do. Jesus then closes and he says, truly, in verse 18, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Sound familiar? Matthew 16. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. What he had said to Peter is now for the disciples. It's not just Peter who gets this. The disciples get this. Again, I say to you, if two or three of you if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. And then those famous words: "For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am I among them." And so we have that language of binding and loosing that we saw in Matthew 16. It's now, here, what is the binding and loosing? The responsibility of the keys. It is the responsibility we're given of church discipline of this step process. That's not just for Peter, it's not just for the disciples, but the last step tells us it is for the church. It is the church's responsibility. Those words binding and loosing, I saw a humorous clip from one author, speaker, pastor, Vodi Bauckham, which I don't agree with on everything, but I thought it was just very humorous. He talked about other churches that he's gone into that, that they'll say, we bind you, Satan, in the name of Jesus. He's bound now. And he, and he goes, I just want to walk up to those people and say, can you come over to my church? Can you come over to all the other churches and bind Satan there? Because he seems like he's only being bound at your church. I was wondering if you could help a brother out. Maybe there's more to this than just that. Binding has to do with church discipline. And so when the person says, I will rebel against God, the church binds. When the person says, I am sorry, the church loses. We then have that statement that says, where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. And then you get those people who will say, see, there's a church right there. I don't need to show up to church on Sunday morning. I can go to Gigi's coffee shop, and me and my two friends have got a church just right there. And is that the definition of a church? Is that what Jesus has in mind, or what Matthew is giving us here? Remember, Jesus is just on the heels of having said, where two or three witnesses come together in that second stage, that right there, that's the two or three we're talking about. So where the two or three are gathered in my name is within the context of church discipline. Jesus is reassuring you. When you have to go do that uncomfortable task, I am going to be present among you as you lovingly call a brother out. Make sure we understand what our Savior is saying. The two or three is not merely a church. It's the two or three that are coming together the practice of church discipline. How long should this process take? The answer is as long as it takes to determine if someone is unrepentant. It could be very quick. It could be a long process. Let me give you an example. Let's say you have a man who has chosen on unbiblical grounds to leave his wife and have an affair and go for another woman. And he's going to destroy his family in the process. He's going to leave the kids behind And you confront that brother and you say, this is not good. And you say all the things according to scripture. And he looks at you and he says, I am set. I will do this. That seems pretty clear in a conversation like that. If you've ever had to have those conversations, when someone says, I am not turning back, that's pretty quick when you go through that process. Let's say on the other hand, you have someone who has an incredibly destructive gambling addiction. And that, and we're not just talking about playing a little bit of cards here or there. We're talking about someone who is destroying their family as well. And they say, I am sorry. I won't ever do it again. The next week they do it again. And after a certain while of maybe a long period of time, you realize they are just saying those words to appease you. The church doesn't always get it right. You can think of a hundred scenarios, as, as I just given two. Church will not always get it right, but it's the church's responsibility to discern, and we ask the Spirit to help us as we do it. Elders, this, by the way, is a warning for us that before we ever recommend before the church that someone no longer be called a member, we better be right before we bring them before the church. This is for serious things here. And so it is a four-step process of going to the individual alone, small group, and then the church. Let's go now. You with me? Let's go to 1 Corinthians 5. Let's look at that case study. Paul himself speaks about a man who has been in grievous sin. For the sake of time, we can't go into the whole passage, but we'll read the main parts. And I'd encourage you to read it on your own at some point. Verse 1 says this. There's a man who's committed terrible sin, and he says, It's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. And so like ancient Israel who had committed sin that not even the Canaanites would commit, the church in Corinth was committing sin that not even the Romans, the pagans, would commit. This guy was committing a terrible sin. It says he's with his father's mother, so some assume this was his his stepmother that he was fooling around with. It may have been his own mother. And this is shocking stuff. And the church seems to be okay with it. Paul then says in verse 4, he goes, here's what you're supposed to do. When you're assembled, pay attention to that word assembled. You know the similarity between here and what Jesus had said. When the church comes together, that last step. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, in my spirit is presence, with the power of Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man as Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. The whole church comes together to deliver over this person. And so this man was a bad apple, he was spoiling the whole bunch. And combined with the Corinthians' own arrogance and pride in their own spirituality it led them to allowing heinous sin in their own midst. Paul's going to end in the passage. He's going to say the last thing, if it was unclear, purge the evil person among you. So you take 1 Corinthians 5, you take what Jesus had said. Do you notice that that's much different than what Jesus had said? Paul says just kind of one-step process, get the guy out, right? But with Jesus, it's a four-step process. How do we put these two together now? One answer has been that this is the difference between public horrible sin and the other is private sin. In the history of the church, that is is a common interpretation. I should say this. This is the responsibility of being a church leader at Bethesda, not just for myself but others included. If there is a horrible, heinous public sin like this, it would require for us to address that. But I think the clearness, I think what's going on here is there's a clearness of unrepentance. That four-step process is a discernment process. Here, it's obvious. This person, Paul had determined, was unrepentant. It's about the heart. The length of time to discern is determined by being able to discern rebellion in a person's heart. And so that word excommunication, we come to that now. At the very least, as I've, I've spent time wrestling with this word, here's what I can say it it does involve, at the very least, a removal from church membership, a removal from the ministry privileges and responsibilities that that person has. Many have also said that that includes a participation in the Lord's Supper because that is something that's for believers. And if you have someone who has acted in a way that nothing in their life says that they're a believer, how can you participate in what the community of saints is a part of? And we do this as a church lamenting all the way as this happens. Some will object and say, well, wait a second, Aaron, didn't you say last week that if I'm a sinner and I sin on Saturday night and I'm a Christian, I should come boldly before the table of grace? I did say that last week. But the difference between that person and the situation we're talking about here is the heart of unrepentance. You come forward if you're repentant. We're dealing with a person who has hardened themselves. As I've been talking this morning, perhaps the thought has occurred to you, doesn't Jesus say, don't judge lest ye be judged? Which is always interesting to me because no one ever speaks in King James until they quote Matthew 6, 7, right in there. Or what I do in my own private time is nobody else's business except for my own. However, if you've been a Christian for a while... As I've been talking, you could probably think of specific persons that, unfortunately, you've encountered in the church who have wreaked havoc, caused destruction, have, 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 have soiled the name of Christ, have brought a horrible reputation on God's church. And, maybe, you have, and that, maybe that person's been a teacher, has been in leadership, and you've seen them and go, when will someone stand up to this person? Because they're, they're making our reputation in the community a terrible reputation. You read read 1 Timothy 3 at the end there where it talks about the responsibility and qualifications of elders. It says that he is thought well of by outsiders, unbelievers. That's the part that we never talk about in the search process for pastors. How does the world perceive that person? Does he have a good reputation? Last week we read about how when we fail to judge Christians inside of God's church, we risk the judgment of God. Outside of the church we don't judge. Inside the church we do. It's not judgmentalism. It is a calling to be accountable. Proverbs says, Better is open rebuke than hidden love. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. And this is why we have spent so much time talking about discipleship and now church discipline because I want you to see I would hate for some of us to go through our whole lives and everybody else around us sees The sin, when Justine and I first started dating, she would never tell me about the stuff that was in between my teeth. But now we've been married nine years, she has no hesitation to tell me about those things. I'm very thankful that she does that, okay? Otherwise, it's humiliating for me when I smile. I want you to think about the same thing by way of analogy for yourself. What if you had sin in your life that you could not see in your blind spot? And every time you smile, by way of your ministry or whatever the Lord has for you, Everybody cringed around you because no one had the guts to be able to say, I love you too much to let you stay where you're at. Discipline within the context of discipleship is meant to be uplifting, not condemning. And so get this, restoration is always the goal of church discipline. Paul will say later in 2 Corinthians 5, uh, it's really interesting, 2, 2, 5 through 11, he's going to talk about another brother it might have been the same one in chapter 5 here. And he says, that's enough. You can bring him on in. He says this, now if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure not to put it too severely to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. If you want, if you want maybe some textual evidence for the value of voting in the church, this would be it. the majority approved. This should be done. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. You never want someone to have excessive sorrow. And he says, so I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. Loving church discipline is always done in discipleship as we challenge, encourage, forgive, and even sometimes correct one another on the road to the king. So these are the major passages. Are we doing okay? Did we make it through all that? I think, are we all right? Okay. Let me give you some takeaways here. First, if you haven't caught on, church discipline is ultimately the responsibility of the congregation. Jesus says the last step is to take it to the church. Paul doesn't tell church leaders to do this. He says to the church in Corinth they are supposed to cast this person out. And he says that in 2 Corinthians, we just read that, the majority took part in this. So I want you to think of the implications of this. The final authority in the local congregation underneath King Jesus is the congregation. And this is where where people have gone to. I'm a congregationalist. What that means is that no synod, not a pope, not a council is ultimately responsible and can tell Bethesda Church what to do. It It is not a pastor. It is not elders. It is not deacons or ministry leaders. It is the congregation as a whole speaking with one voice together. And this is why I affirm the autonomy of the local church. So at the end of the day, it is not the United States Mennonite brethren who tells Bethesda what she can or cannot do. We, friendly, in a friendly way, cooperate as a network with fellow churches, but as us together as a whole, underneath King Jesus, the autonomy of the local church. And so if we ever have to come to the point, hear me on this, if we ever have to come to the point where we practice formal church discipline, it won't be the elders who say, this is what we will do. It will be by recommendation of the elders saying, this is what we see. And you will decide ultimately. There's a severity here. Church discipline, secondly, is done for church members only. And so if you're a guest with us, please relax. We're just glad you're here. Uh, This is for the church member who has covenanted with The body and then said, I agree with what we believe. I agree with how to live here. First Corinthians 5.12 says, it is not those outside the church, but those inside the church whom you are supposed to judge. God judges the outside. And so we valued church membership up until this point. So we could be clear. If you're a ministry leader here, I would want you to consider if you have people who are serving with you who are not members, you have never held them to account to say, do you believe what we believe? And if they ever were to teach something that you did not affirm, you would not have a leg to stand on because they never said in the first place, yes, we're on the same page. If you're, if you're a volunteer and you hear me and you're not a member, know that out of compassion and love, we want to be on the same page with you. So we will continue to bring this up. The third thing I want to ask you, is your heart and is my heart receptive towards correction? Seldom are rebukes completely pure. I've had people offer a word of correction to me and they got 80% of it wrong. It's really easy to emphasize the 80%. But they may have had 20% of it right, and I need to pay attention to that. Do we have a culture at Bethesda where you can't question anything? Or do we have a culture of Bethesda where we're able to have conversations with one another? That's the thing I think about often as an elder. Am I approachable? Are we approachable as ministry leaders so that others can come before us? Otherwise, you will have a culture of suspicion, and that is unhealthy. Are we able to have people come to us and say, here's what I see, and we can say, yes, I hear you. Which is more embarrassing to have your brothers and sisters come alongside of you and say, we see sin in your life, and we don't want it for you. And it's like a family intervention. Or is it more embarrassing to go your entire life not being willing to hear correction and everybody sees it except for you? I want to say this is one of the things that we talk about brothers all the time is that correction is best done within the context of relationship. If you know that somebody cares for you genuinely, when they bring something in front of you, you know they have their best motive in mind. And so if you've been at Bethesda for a length of time and nobody really knows you and you show up, brother, and your wife is just pleading, God, maybe this time, a little statement in a, in, in, a, in a verse that is read or a little bit of this in the service will get hold of my husband in the way that I have not been able to get a hold of him. And he has, he has cut himself off from the world. Maybe this time, if that's you. Brother, you're by yourself and you're doing this alone. And for those of us who are husbands here, your wife sees it and they want you to be within the context of relationship so that you would have brothers who can give correction to you and you would hear it and you would be able to live life to the fullest. And the end of church discipline is Galatians 1. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Gentleness, not harshness. Keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. When you allow someone back into church membership who has cut themselves off because of their sin, answer: the moment, the moment they have genuine repentance, there is not a. We are talking not about someone who maybe because of a crime they have committed or they are coming in here would would danger the safety of the church. We're talking about someone who has committed sin, <clears throat> has been asked to no longer be a member, but then they say, "I have repented." And you bring them back in immediately. Grace and forgiveness comes from the cross. And God's grace sometimes comes through people being in the hands and feet of Jesus, in the binding, but also in the loosing. There's going to come a day, friends, where we're going to have to confront these things. And Lord willing, you will remember what we did today, in these passages that we looked at. And let us be ready to speak the truth in love. I continue to come back to this. If you want this community to know that we believe the gospel, it will require this community seeing the gospel brightly lived out in our lives. We practice what we preach. And so let us take heart of these verses for the sake of restoration, growing as disciples. Let us take seriously the sin that Jesus died for and let us live in holiness. Let's not just keep sinning and say, God will forgive me. Shall we keep on sinning so that grace would abound? No. Grace is ours. Let us crucify the flesh daily. Let us live holiness empowered by grace. Let us be the hands and feet of Jesus, and let us say yes that you and I are our brothers and our sisters. Keeper, we made it. We pray. Thank you for listening to Bethesda Church's weekly sermon podcast. If you would like to know more about Bethesda Church, you can find us online by visiting our website at www.bethesdahuron.com, or you can find us on Facebook and YouTube at Bethesda Huron.